Good evening. Please stand and join us as we worship. You make me brave. 
share a little bit something with y'all. So about, I say, about 10 years ago, um, I met this worship pastor, and uh, I was going to this church, and um, of course, I, everybody know I love basketball, right? So I love basketball, and as soon as I walked in the church, um, it was like doing praise and worship. So he was like, after service, he like came right up to me. So you just imagine this worship pastor, I don't even know him. He walked up, he walked right up next to me and he was like, Man, like your worship game is so weak, right? So I'm like, dang. So anybody here, your hands get sweaty when somebody kind of make you feel uncomfortable. So I so I was really uncomfortable, right? And I was like, what you what you talk like? Let me tell you what you man, what you talking about, bro? Like what you talking? So what happened was um he was like, Man, I seen you play basketball in the gym and Man, you like dunking on people, shooting on people, doing all this razzle-dazzle, making people look stupid. But when you come in the arena of, of God, you kind of like pump fake. And over a period of time, he started to walk, uh, walk with me to tell me what worship was. So every day we meet like on a, like, a Tuesday, and i never forget, he gave me my first like Hill song and like Bethel CD. I didn't even know who those people were at the time. But over a period of time, he, he started to tell me what worship really, truly meant. And he was like, man, when you walk into a church service, like everything that went on through the week, like you lift your hands up and you just think about like what God is doing. Like any, anything you fight in any battle, any trial, any tribulation that you got going on and you just give it to God. I was like, OK, it took me like three months, but three months passed and um, I started coming to church and like I started to realize like. When I went to church, like, I started, like, to worry about what everybody thought about me. So when I lift my hands, like, I'm like, like anybody like, lifting their hands? And I, when I started coming, like, realizing, like, worship is, like, contagious. So when I started doing it, like, a friend of mine started doing it, and then another person started doing it. But 
truly, I was like really connecting with God, like really connecting with God. So um, I wanted to share that with y'all because um, people always like, man, Dwayne, like what was the turning point of your life? And I was like, man, this pastor, like, um, like we best friends now, like he started telling me what worship, worship really meant. He gave me this Hillsong CD and I started to like understand like what it meant. And, he, and one thing before I get off, like one thing he told me, like, you don't just worship in the church service. You kind of worship throughout your day. So I'm like, okay, so I tried it. So I, so I worship at nine o'clock and then at 12 o'clock I worship and then at three o'clock I worship and then at like six o'clock I worship. So he said, you have to worship throughout the day because you kind of you lose fuel throughout your day. And like, man, now I'll be just be bumping like Bethel and all that ooby dooby jazz and I'll be like jamming. And like, I don't really care what people think about me. It's, like, it's just like a connection between me and God, man. So as we, as we sing this next song, like just like think about everything that went on through the, throughout the week and just like give it to God. Like you don't gotta lift your hands up, but just like think about the words and let it like, let it like resonate, resonate in, inside of your heart. Thank you. If you could stand and join us in worship. There's a place when the heart is under fire. Another way when the walls are closing in. space between where I used to be and this reckoning. I know I will never be alone. There is another in the fire standing next to me. There is another in the waters holding back the seas. And should I ever need set free there is a cross that bears the burden where another died for me there is another in the Slave to my sin anymore. And should I pull up the space between what remains of me and this reckoning? Either way, I will bow to the things of this world. And I know, I know, I will never be alone. There is another in the fire. Standing next to me, there is another in the waters, holding back the seas. And should I ever leave reminding what power set me free? There is a grave that holds nobody, and now the power lives in me. In the darkness, as the darkness bows to Him, I can hear the roar in the heavens, as the space between wears thin. I can feel the ground shake beneath us, as the prison walls cave in. 
again. Kids, you are not dismissed. Hang out with us for just a little bit again, but I promise I will, I will come back and I'll, I'll try to remember. Oh no, that's not good. I'll try to remember to uh, get you guys out of here. Um, hey, I want to do a little church business before we get into the message tonight. I'm pretty excited about this. I'm going to ask Dwayne to come back up and Karina and Tanya, if she's in here, <clears throat> have you guys come up and join me here on stage. So um, last year was a weird year, 2020. We had these big plans. Like, now come all the way up because the people at home can't see you if you're not up here. We want people at home to be just as engaged as the folks here. Um, yeah, 2020 was a weird year. We started out the year. We're like, all right, we're, we're entering a new phase of the church. We were four years in, and we're like, okay, it's time to go to Refuge 2.0. And so we, we started meeting in January, and we had a great 2.0 meeting, and we started laying plans. And then we got to February, and we had another great meeting, and we're really starting to figure out where we're going to go direction-wise as a church. And then March happened, and you know, everything stopped. And I know some of you here have been a part of our church since before then. We actually have a lot of new faces, so some of you, this is all new to you anyway, so maybe it doesn't make any difference. But for the last four and a half years, Tanya has served as our children's pastor. She's also been our youth pastor. She's also been our outreach pastor. She's also managed our facility for the most part. She's taken care of getting supplies. Her husband's been security. I don't know what else. I mean, probably a lot of other things, stuff I could add to that list. So she's been a jack of all trades, and that's who we are as a church. We keep our expenses low, and that's purposeful, and so we all have to do a variety of tasks. I mean, we've cleaned toilets and unclogged things. That's just part of being a pastor here at Refuge, but she's been doing a lot for the last four and a half years. As we relaunched from COVID, we weren't sure what we are going to do with youth and if we were even going to start it up or not, and Dwayne came to me and said, I think I could do youth just out of the blue. I'm like, well, we just had a sermon on being an organic church. That sounds about as organic as it comes. So yeah, man, I don't know. What's your plan? Just do it. Go for it. And what's happened over that period of time is, is, you know, at Refuge, we may have 12 or 13 kids here that are part of our youth group, but he's expanded that into bringing kids from downtown and the Dunbar community into this youth group. And now we've got 30 plus kids coming to youth group every um, Wednesday night here. And Karina and him have been doing that together. <clears throat> And so it does now feel like it's time to maybe go into that 2.0 stage as a church as we begin to kind of expand and grow and be the church that God desires for us to be. So we've made some changes with some things in the last week, and it's going to take effect next week. Um, Tanya is no longer going to be the children's pastor. Um, couldn't come up with a title initially. We we're going to call it the Outreach Inreach Pastor. Basically, the focus was reaching out into the community and reaching in to build relationships within this community. 
Both of those had community in it. So I think we'll call you the community pastor. That's community out there and community in here. I think that's very fitting. So that's the role she's going to be stepping in for us as a church. And she'll be building small groups and, and connecting people internally. And she'll be building our projects as we reach out into the community, including, I didn't add on your job list earlier, but the VBS that we do every year that you've already done, she's going to continue to head that up and even expand that, our food pantry and some of the other things we do as a church. Karina has said... She will be our children's pastor. She's never done it in her life before, but she grew up going to church. She's been a part of it. She's got children of her own. And so she has said she will be our children's pastor. And so we've already been meeting and discussing and talking about some changes we're going to make. One of those changes is next week, those of you with kids, when you get here, you're going to check your kids in. And they're going to go into children's ministry for a while. And they're going to hang out in there. And then at the end of the service, we're going to move some of our worship time to the end of the service because we do believe it's important for kids to see us worship and be a part of that. And so they're going to come back in and then participate in worship with us, maybe put them right here in the front row so they're examples perhaps to the rest of us. So, so Karina is taking over our children's ministry, and we're actually changing that name as well to family ministry because we want it to encompass more than just kids. I said the primary objective is, is the family and being whole as a family. Uh, and then last but not least, Dwayne is going to continue to do youth group, but more in an expanded role as we continue to try to grow that and build that and uh, just continue to bring people in. And so he's going to continue that. And he's going to step into a few other roles and begin to help me pastor the church in different ways, including speaking next week. So Dwayne will be doing the sermon next week, and he's been kind of coming in and helping uh, like do the worship time tonight or announcements last week and all of that. So we kind of are starting to have a pastoral team at Refuge. And then, of course, we've got Scott, who does our recovery ministry, and he's kind of the recovery ministry leader. My wife, Karen, who does the counseling ministry. And so that's a thing. And then we've got so many people doing so many things. We're, we're becoming a church, y'all. So four and a half years in, we're, we're starting to be something here, I think. So praise God. <clears throat> but before I let him off the stage, um, I'm not from the church world, so I never knew really how things go. But there's a setting apart thing where you, you just set people apart. You, you pray for them, and the roles are going in. So I want to do that to set them up for the greatest success. I think we ought to pray for them before they start these new roles. So if you'll just join me, we can't circle around, but bow your heads, reach your arms out, and then I'm going to pray for these three right now. Father God, we thank you for Tanya, for Karina, for Dwayne. First, I thank you. I thank you personally for their friendship in my life, uh, the times they've been there for me to encourage me and to empower me and to equip me. And so, God, I just personally want to thank you for my relationship with each of these three and, and what they've met in my life. And so, God, as they step into these new roles, we just give thanks for their bravery that you called them and they stepped out courageously to take on challenges that are new to them that they've never done before. And so, God, we just thank you for that humility and courage to step out. God, we pray for each of these people as they start these new journeys, that you would be with them, that you would be for them as we know you are, that they would be a part of building refuge, of growing refuge, not just in numbers, God, but growing us as disciples, growing our faith, growing our understanding of grace. God, we thank you for the kids that are on the stage tonight as well. And we thank you for Tanya's kids that they're willing to sacrifice her uh, time here to do this for the church. God, we thank you for allowing us to lead refuge. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, guys. And kids, you're dismissed. <laughs> so in my notes tonight, I have kids, you are dismissed, written down. 
It's in boldface. It's underlined. I've got four exclamation marks, and it's highlighted because it's important. I didn't want to miss that this week. I wanted to make sure there was some emphasis on that. And so there it is, just all kinds of emphasis pointing to it in my notes. Now, the people in the Bible, the Old Testament and New Testament writers, they did similar things. I mean, they had different handwriting that they could use to, to bold something or to emphasize something. But if they really wanted to make something stand out, they would repeat the word. And so if you remember last week, I said, this is one of Jesus's amen statements. And he said, you know, truly, truly, I say unto you. He says, truly, truly, that's an emphasis, meaning everything that Jesus said is important. But when he said truly, truly, he repeated that word. That means this is of utmost important. Pay special attention to this. In the Bible, there's only one attribute to God that is ever raised to the third degree. God is love, right? But we never see in the Bible that God is love, love, love. God is merciful, but we never see God as merciful, 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 or wrathful, wrathful, wrathful. But when it comes to God's holiness, it's holy, holy, holy. Those words that we just sang. Now, most of us, we, we throw that word around loosely, I kind of was paying attention to myself this week. I'm watching the IU basketball game. I'm like, holy crap, these refs stink. They're terrible. I went outside on Thursday morning. It was freezing. I'm like, holy guacamole, it's cold out here. We just throw that word around. But holiness is the attribute of God. Holiness is his defining characteristic and so for us, there is a huge spiritual and theological significance to understanding what it means for God to be holy. God's holiness means absolute moral purity. It's this concept that God is not only perfect, but that God is perfectly perfect. That he is the very source of goodness. That he is the very standard of morality, which makes God utterly set apart from humanity which makes his presence, the presence of God then, overwhelming and even dangerous. And so an illustration I once heard is it's like the sun. The sun's out there, you know, in outer space, and it's bright, and it's powerful, and it gives us warmth. It's the source of life. It's the source of energy. It radiates throughout our entire solar system. So the sun's power is good, and it's helpful. But if you get too close to that power... It's dangerous. If you get too close, obviously, we know we would disintegrate. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 4, the angels are singing what we just sang. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And when the angels sing those words, it says the temple foundations shook. Inanimate, lifeless parts of creation shook and trembled at just the mention of God's holy name. John Calvin, and you'll have to forgive this because it's old English, but he says, Hence, that dread and amazement with which, as Scripture uniformly relates, holy men were struck and overwhelmed whenever they beheld the presence of God. When we see those who previously stood firm and secure, so quaking in terror that the fear of death takes hold of them, nay, they are in a manner swallowed up and annihilated. He says the inference to be drawn is that men are never impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty 
of God. And so when we read the Old Testament and we go to uh, Jacob and he's wrestling with God, remember his hips displaced, he gets so close to God that he is permanently disabled for the rest of his life. Never walks the same. We go to the book of Job. He comes near to God, and the words that come out of his mouth is, I despise myself. Moses, he says, God, I want to be near you. I want to be close to you. And God says, you can't because it would kill you. If we go back to the prophet Isaiah, he comes into the presence of God. Verse 5, he says, woe is me, for I am undone. Mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is Isaiah. This is the prophet. This is the best of the best in Israel. And he comes close to God and he says, I am undone. Why does seeing God cause this prophet to become undone? And undone has this like psychological disintegration attached to it. Because next to a holy God, Isaiah, for the first time in his life, sees clearly how spiritually broken he is. He's convicted of his insignificance. So we talked about last week, we spend our lives thinking that we are spiritually middle class. We're, we're not that bad, we're not God, but, but we're here in the middle. We're, we're okay. And we become comfortable with our imperfection. We start judging ourselves against others. And we're always going to be able to find somebody who's worse at that or who's more blank. We're like the Pharisee, God, thank you, I'm not like that sinful person over there. But next to the holiness of God, the standard of perfection, the standard of goodness for Isaiah and for us, our brokenness is fully exposed. And when that happens, the Bible says we will be undone. It's a long intro, but it's important context for this story we're going to read tonight. It's a very famous story, and it's probably going to be a spin and a turn on the story that perhaps you haven't heard before. That's where we're leading to. We're in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be here uh, through Easter. We're saying it's from Jesus to Christ, and we've made it to chapter 5. And recently, Jesus has been baptized. His ministry has begun. And so far, people either love him or they want to murder him. And we're going to find that throughout the course of Jesus' life. But chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 1. It says, One day, as Jesus was preaching on the shore of uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. Jesus is the next big thing. Crowds are drawn to crowds, right? When you see a crowd, you're drawn to a crowd. People are drawn to crowds and the next big thing. Think of GameStop. You know, it's, it's popular. Everybody's drawn to it, and it draws more people to it. We're drawn to crowds. We're drawn to things that are exciting, that are starting up. And so Jesus has started this fledgling ministry, and it did start out small, but now it's at its tipping point. It's beginning to explode. And so these crowds are coming around Jesus, and they're getting so big that they're actually about to push Jesus into the Sea of Galilee just to get close to him, just to see him, just to hear him. And remember, Jesus is both fully God, but he's also fully man. And I love the resourcefulness he uses here. He's just going to use his fully man part, and he's going to improvise as we do. It says in verse 2, he noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Now, fishermen here, they're not um, hook and line type fishermen like we are. They use nets, these, these big nets that they threw out to catch the fish. And they would fish all night, and then they would come to shore, and they would sell their fish. They'd unload the haul. Of course, with fishing, 
today and then, there are a lot of chores associated with fishing. Every time I go out, I wonder why I went and did that, because I've spent three hours cleaning up what's something I did for two hours. There's just a lot of chores associated with fishing, especially if you want your gear to last. And so they're cleaning their nets, it says. And what the, they're basically scraping all the gunk off of their nets, the seaweed, the dead fish, all the guts and all that. They're, they're cleaning it off their nets so they wouldn't dry out and eventually fall apart. And just by the way, for anybody who's curious and you're a boater like me, I, I looked up, the boats that they are using are about 25-foot-long boats. They're seven and a half feet wide, and they got about a four-and-a-half-foot draft. And so these boats that they're in, that they're fishing with, they're not big pirate ships that, that we think of or that we might see with these big sails and everything. Think of the, the traditional sailboat you see here in southwest Florida, about 25 feet uh, long and, and not super wide. That's the kind of boats that they're in, and they would roll them out. Verse 3 says, Stepping into one of the boats... Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. Now, Simon's the owner of this boat. He's been fishing all night. What is Simon doing? He's cleaning his nets. That's what we were just told. That means he's working. He's busy. And what's Jesus doing then? He's interrupting Simon. He's saying, Simon, I, I see you over here. You're, you're working hard. I know you haven't slept for 24 hours. I know you want to get home to see your family, but... Could you be a sweetheart and come over here and push this boat out into the water for me? You think Simon's annoyed? Rolling his eyes? Probably. But Simon knows Jesus. This isn't his first encounter with Jesus. In the Gospel of John, we see that Simon, Peter, uh, meets him through John the Baptist. He's actually, that's where he's given the name Peter. In Luke chapter 4, the chapter prior to this, we didn't do the story, but Jesus goes actually to Simon's home. His mother-in-law is sick. She's got a fever. Everyone asked for healing. It says Jesus rebuked the fever. I don't know how you rebuke a fever, but he rebuked the fever. And then the mother-in-law got up and cooked him dinner. It's a great story. And so uh, Simon, he's like, okay, Jesus, you help me before. I got it. I, I owe you. And so he, he goes out and he pushes the boat. And this is, of course, assuming Simon wanted his mother-in-law healed. Maybe he didn't want that to happen. I don't know. And so it says, so Jesus sat in the boat. Remember, the rabbi sits, the congregation stands. Again, I think we should be more biblical in that account. And then he taught the crowds from there. And so along the shore here at the Sea of Galilee, there's these steep inlets and they zigzag back and forth, and it creates kind of this natural amphitheater. And so I've read to this day, if you get in a little boat and you go a little bit offshore, you can actually speak in a quiet, natural voice, and you can be clearly heard by everybody who's around there. Verse 4 says, when he had finished speaking, he had said to Simon, now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Jesus needs to learn some boundaries. I mean, Simon's working. And Jesus has already interrupted him. And now he's giving unsolicited advice. And it's not good advice. It's bad advice. Jesus is a carpenter, not a fisherman. That'd be like me, who is an insurance agent by trade, going to Dominic Leote, who's watching from home tonight. They own an acupuncture clinic. And going there and saying, Dominic, you need to put that needle right there. That'd be... You know, I have no business in telling him what to do. That's his trade, not mine. But verse 5, it says, Master, this is Peter speaking, and that's a very important word. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all night and didn't catch a thing. And he's just bringing Jesus up to speed. Because everything about Jesus' suggestion, and it's not really a suggestion, it's a command. Everything about this command is wrong. In the Sea of Galilee, you fished at night. That's when the fish were biting, not the daytime. And here Jesus is telling them to go out in the daytime. 
The fish are obviously not hungry. They're not biting. I don't know if it's a moon thing or what, but they're not biting. And these guys are tired. Have you ever been on a boat when you're tired or fishing or cutting things or whatever? You, you can be prone to accidents and mistakes. On top of that, this isn't practical. The plan doesn't seem well thought out. Peter just got all his gear cleaned up from the last failed attempt. Seems like a total waste of time, a total waste of effort, a total waste of resources and energy, and it may even be dangerous. And hopefully you see, this is a really easy sermon to preach on that. I mean, the the implications for our lives are pretty straightforward. I don't have to be a theological genius to, to preach this one and to tie it together. Jesus will interrupt your life. He will ask you to do things with no regards to how busy you are or what your existing plans are. He'll act like he knows better than you do, even when you think you know better. He'll be impractical. He'll tell you to do and give you ideas that seem illogical. And so for us, we usually are like, well, here's all the reasons that's not going to work, Jesus. Or for us, we're like, I'm still cleaning up the mess from the last failure. And Jesus is like, that's cool. Now go out into the deep water. And when he says that, then we have two choices. Obey Jesus, launch the boat, or disobey. And so the question is, is Jesus your master, or is he more of an advisor? Jesus, I I have this idea. I think it might be something good for me to do. And what's your thoughts? That's interesting, Jesus. Those are some interesting thoughts. I'll take those under advisement. If what Jesus is telling us to do, whether it's let go of a sin that we're still hanging on to or being called to serve as Dwayne and Karina and Tanya are or, or to make some sort of sacrifice, if that makes sense, if it's pragmatic, if it fits our goals, then we'll be like, sure, Jesus, that sounds like some great advice. Let's do it. But if it doesn't, and it sounds like a lot of work, or it sounds like we're going to give something up, or we're going to lose some freedom, or if it sounds impractical, or if it sounds impossible, gee, Jesus, I, I appreciate the input, but I'm the captain of the ship, and we're going to sail in a different direction. Or maybe we're not going to sail at all. And so Jesus commanded, you know, be baptized. I don't know, is that that really necessary, Jesus? I'll take that under advisement. Jesus says, love your neighbor. Which neighbor, Jesus? I mean, that's what the Pharisees said, and that's what Dwayne's going to teach on next week. This isn't a money sermon, (laughs) but we sent out giving statements this week, so it was kind of on my mind as I was writing the sermon. And um, if you didn't get an email, you should have got an email that said everything you gave to Refuge money-wise last week. Money is one of those topics in the Bible and possessions, money and possessions included. It's the second most referenced topic in the Bible. You've heard this before. Jesus talked more about money than heaven and hell combined. Jesus talked about money more than than faith and prayer combined. Jesus talked about money 30 times more than he talked about sex. Why did Jesus spend so much time on money? Why does the Bible spend so much time on money? And sure, it's because the church needs money so we can advance the kingdom and keep our lights on, and we're supposed to feed the orphan and clothe the widow. But most of all, money is one of the clearest signs whether or not Jesus is your master or your advisor. See, the Bible says that debt is bad. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear throughout the Old Testament that's, that's repeated. But we'll be like, well, that's, that's good advice, but I really want that. So I'm going to go into debt like crazy to get it. 
Jesus said, don't store up treasures on earth. And you're like, I hear what you're saying there, Jesus, and I'll take that under consideration as I do what I want to do. Bible says we're to be radically generous. And we're like, I tell you what, Jesus, it's, it's been a good year this year, and I, I've done okay, so let's not get crazy, but I'll spare a few dollars. That's, that's good advice, my friend. But that's not the command of the Bible. Jesus commands radical generosity to the point that it can have a negative effect on the quality of our life, to the effect that it has risk on our life, to the effect that everybody in your income bracket thinks you're nuts because of your generosity. Just a quick sidebar here. I want to thank everybody in the room who has obeyed that command. Uh, I don't talk about money a whole lot as a church. We don't even do a tithing thing every week. There's a safe in the back of the room or you can um, give online. So it's just not something we talk about a lot because this is a really generous church. Um, just refuges giving, I mentioned this before, was up 20% in 2020 over 2019, and we didn't meet for like six months. So that was pretty phenomenal. Currently, I looked at our cash reserves. We have enough cash reserves as a church that we could cover a year to a year and a half of expenses without taking in another dime. We don't want that to happen, but, but we are good financial stewards. We keep our expenses low. Um, basically, we have rent and a few other expenses because we believe that the Bible also commands that most of the money that churches take in shouldn't be on a big show and entertainment, that it ought to be on loving our neighbors and feeding that orphan and widow and seeking and save the lost. So again, just a sidebar, I just want to say thank you to everybody who did give to Refuge last year and continues to do so. Money is a clear sign of whether Jesus is our master or whether he's our advisor. So Peter knows the fish aren't biting. He knows it's the wrong time of the day. He'd much rather be home with his family how's he going to respond? Verse 5, it says, But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. Big line, if you say so. Peter sets aside his human reasoning, and in faith, he simply obeys Jesus. And if you don't know this story, I'll give you a spoiler alert. From this one decision of Peter to say, if you say so, from that moment forward, Peter's life would never be the same. Forever changed, the church would be built upon Peter. And upon that, billions upon billions of lives, that's B, billions, would be saved. And so never discount what Jesus can accomplish through a simple act of obedience. Again, this text this week is a really familiar story. If you've been in church any length of time, You've heard it a hundred times. The, the catch is beyond their wildest dreams. They get so many fish, it almost sinks the boat. And then the preacher goes on to tell us, obey Jesus and he will produce miracles in your life. Or they'll, they'll begin talking about all the ways that we can become fishers of men. Maybe they need people to volunteer in ministry that week, so that's the sermon that they use. Or they want to have a big evangelism outreach thing for the church. And certainly, those are all lessons that we can take from this story obedience, venturing out into the deep when Jesus calls, omniscience of Jesus, that he knew where to cast the nets, that God placed the fish there. There's so many great parts of the story. But here's where I want us to dig in tonight. Peter should be ecstatic. I mean, he's a fisherman. It means he catches fish for a living, and, and this should be bank. He should be excited. All the money he's going to make from all these fish that he just caught, he just experienced the miracle of Jesus firsthand. That'd be pretty awesome to see. Surely he's thinking, well, this is the most popular rabbi, and now I get to be a part of the inner circle. So how's Peter going to respond? It says, verse 8, when Simon Peter realized what had happened, 
he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh, Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. It's not the reaction we would expect. This is Peter, who had previously been comfortable and secure and confident with his friend Jesus in his presence. But now he's seen Jesus for who he really is, and he's come undone. Just like Job, just like Moses, just like Isaiah, he sees the holiness and majesty of Jesus, God in the flesh, and he's convicted of his sinfulness and his insignificance. C.S. Lewis, speaking on meeting God, he says, when you meet God, you would feel wonder and a certain shrinking, an emotion which might be expressed in Shakespeare's words, under it my genius is rebuked. This feeling may be described as awe and the object which excites it as the numinous. Numinous. It's a new word for me. I didn't know that word before, so I had to look it up. It's the presence of something beyond our comprehension. Numinous. And it uses this word awe. We know that awe is this reverence and wonder and veneration. There's another writer, Rudolf Otto, in 1917. He's a German theologian. He actually coined the phrase numinous awe. And he defines that. Say that. Numinous awe. Numinous awe. It's a great word. Put that into your vocabulary. You seniors in high school, that'll be on the SAT, I guarantee you. And God's going to give you the answer to that one. Numinous awe. He defines it like this. Being overwhelmed by our own nothingness in contrast to that which is supreme. Being overwhelmed by our nothingness in contrast to that which is supreme. And I know this is all this holiness talk and theology tonight. This is heady stuff for a Saturday at 530. This is deep stuff. I mean, it's really deep theological stuff. And I'm often told by a lot of you or people who have been here in the past that my preaching style is very plain spoken. And I don't know what that means. I don't know if that's a compliment or an insult. I've taken it both ways before. But that's who I am. I'm a plain spoken pastor. And so let's see if we can make this holiness, numinous, awe stuff a little more plain spoken. And so there is a jazz pianist named Brian Culbertson. Now, <clears throat> he's really famous. Jeff uh, Holloman knows this, right? He's, he's like, hey, do you, you know that Brian Culbertson? <laughs> you know, he, he told me about him. I've, I've heard this my whole life. And we're about the same age. I, I played piano growing up. I was classically trained and uh, almost went to college as a piano major. And when I went away, uh, some of my, my pretty close family, aunts and uncles, had heard that Brian Culbertson was coming to the Kentucky Center for the Arts to put on a piano concert. And they thought I had really made it big going away to college college and coming back. And I had actually forgot about Brian Culbertson for a while. And then I got an Instagram account four or five years ago, and I apparently got it before he did. So now every week I get congratulations on putting on an amazing concert. And I always say thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> His tour currently is the XX tour, and it looks kind of racy. So that, that makes me feel a little weird, you know, but... <laughs> On Facebook, I'm on a forum. It's called Sunday Keys. It's to get sounds and stuff for your keyboards. And, and a couple of them said, can you believe Brian Culbertson is a part of our keyboard group? So I've never met this Brian Culbertson. But if I did, I might be a little awestruck. I mean, look at the dude's hair. I, 
how can you not appreciate that hair? And, and of course, of course, his ridiculous skills. I mean, he plays jazz, and it's just a beautiful improv that he does. And, and I've always admired people that just have that ability to, you know, blue like jazz, to really just take it wherever and improvise and all like that. But at the same time, I would meet Mr. Colbertson, and I'd begin to compare myself to him. Well, dang, my skill set's a whole lot lower than his skill set. I pretty much play three worship chords over and over every week, maybe a minor thrown in. If we get into too tough of a key, i got to use a transpose button just to be able to play the song. And i got dad hair, and he's got awesome hair. <laughs> and so I would, I would compare myself. And on the one hand, I would be attracted to his talent. Yet because of that talent, my own lack of talent would be exposed. Are you following me? Bring it a little closer to home. If you were singing out there in our worship time tonight, instead of um, Cody and Anna and Brandy being up here on stage, with a, did a beautiful job tonight, instead of them being up here, one of them's standing right beside of you, and you're singing, you're like, ugh, you hear them sing, and you're like, they sing so beautiful, and I don't. You would be attracted to, you would admire their singing, but it would expose maybe your lack of singing. Another person's majesty whether it's their talent, maybe it's their intelligence, maybe it's their wealth, maybe it's their fame, exposes our lack of talent or intelligence or wealth or fame. And what one experiences in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God is infinitely multiplied. Holy goodness, holy majesty, holy purity. Meanwhile, our genius is rebuked. The greatest hope of Israel was to see God. And the greatest fear of Israel was to see God because his holiness was both attractive and terrifying. And the closer you get to God, the closer you come into his presence, the more you feel that conflict, that struggle, that wrestling. And so if you're here tonight and you're mad at God, or you're wrestling with God, or you want to run away from God, I want you to know you're on the right track because it means you're getting near to God. And on the flip side of that, if you're here tonight and you haven't experienced any pain as you've drawn near to God, there's been no discomfort, there's been no conflict, have you actually gotten near the God of the Bible? I mean, for a lot of us, our idea of getting near to God is going to the beach and watching a beautiful sunset and Oh, I feel so close to God, so near to God. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not criticizing that. I feel the same way. But when we draw near to God, if there is no conflict and there is no trauma and there is no wrestling and there's no junk and gunk stirred up from the bottom, if there's no coming undone ever in our drawing near to God, have you really been near the holy, holy, holy? You know, there's Hobby Lobby theology if you draw near to God, it's warm, it's fuzzy, it's a big pastel-colored blanket. Biblical theology is you draw near to God, it's a traumatic experience. The ground beneath you becomes unstable. You run the risk of coming undone. And so that's why Peter reacts the way that he reacts. He says, Jesus, you are good, you are majestic, you are holy, I am not. Leave me because I cannot stand feeling this way. 
And we're told in Luke, Jesus replied to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. That's the familiar part of the story we know. Peter tells Jesus, leave me, but Jesus doesn't leave. Instead, he calms Peter's fears, just like he does ours. And then he gives him a new profession. And then Peter goes on to live happily ever after. (laughs) So y'all are laughing. You've been in church before. You read the Bible before. Because we know that's wrong. Peter's life is an absolute roller coaster. Up and down. There's confusion. There's wrestling. There's mistakes. There's pain. He's undone over and over again in the presence of Jesus. And then we get to John chapter 21. We're going to go to a different book of the Bible now. And there's this epilogue at the end of the Gospel of John. It's after Jesus has died and is resurrected. And he comes back and he meets the disciples. I think it's three times. And there's a story right at the very end, chapter 21, with a lot of similarities to our story this week. But one thing has changed. So Gospel of John chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Verse 3, Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. Sea of Galilee, same place. They've gone fishing at night, same activity, same time of day, and they've caught nothing. Same results. These guys probably ought to get a new career because it's a recurring theme in the Gospels. Verse 4 says, at dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows. Have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Again, no reason for them to obey, but they did so anyway. Same miracle, haven't caught many fish. Now they're catching fish. Now they begin to think, man, we haven't caught this many fish since. And the disciple Jesus loved, that's how John refers to himself, said to Peter, our Simon Peter here, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that this was the Lord, he put on his tunic. He's fishing naked, apparently, or or with very few clothes on. That's a real thing. He put on his tunic, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. Again, we get a strong reaction from Peter. But this time, the reaction is different. It's not, get away from me, Jesus. It's, here I come, Jesus. So what's changed for Peter? Why this opposite reaction? Has Peter finally got himself cleaned up? So he's got enough sin removed, he's cleaned it off, that he's comfortable in the presence of the holy. No, we know that's not true because this is the first time Peter has seen Jesus since uh, his three-time denial, the rooster crowing, remember all that. So Peter, he's still a hot mess. Well, maybe it's that Peter has just become blind to his sin. He just can't see it anymore, so he can come into the presence of Jesus. He's, he's learned to bury it way, way down. We know that's not it either. In fact, it's the opposite. Spending all that time, those three years, with the holy God in the flesh has allowed him to clearly see his sin. And the closer he's gotten to Jesus, the more junk and gunk that has been exposed And while that sin has been ugly for him to see, it's what drives him to Jesus. I think we just lost all of our computer and technology back there. (laughs) All right, well, that'll restart. I'm going to keep going. Try to stay focused with me a little bit here. Sin is ugly to see. It's what drives Peter to Jesus. It's repentance. 
having his sin exposed. Instead of that sin pushing him away from Jesus, pushing him away from the holy God, it drives him and it should drive us into the arms of a Savior. And so this time, Peter runs to Jesus with abandon. There's no more trembling. There's no more fear. Because he knows that the holy God didn't just expose his sin, that the holy God covered his sin, that he washed his sin in his blood. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me rephrase that. God made him who was holy to be unholy so that we might become holy. The reason we can come into the presence of God and we can pray to him and we can talk to him and we can be in his presence and when we die we're going to be in his presence is because we ourselves have become holy. As we sang tonight, the champion of heaven made a way. Christ's holiness has become our holiness. And so being near to God, it isn't enough. That's not what we want to do in life. We don't want to just get near to God. We need to be in God, which means we need to be in Christ. If being next to a holy God makes you feel less significant, then what should seeing the same holy God die for us make us feel like? If being next to God makes us feel insignificant because of his holiness, because of his majesty, because of his goodness, what should seeing that same God die for us make us feel like? Not just holy, 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 but loved, loved, loved. That's what changed for Peter. It's the difference between Peter of Luke 5 and the Peter of John 21. So what about you? Are you Luke 5 Peter or are you John 21 Peter? Or maybe you're not even a Peter here tonight. You're just somebody there in the crowd. You're standing in the back I'll take a glimpse of Jesus. I'll listen to what Jesus maybe has to say. I'll listen to his word. And you're thinking. And that's good. I encourage you to keep coming, keep thinking, keep hearing God's word. Because I trust Jesus. I don't need to convert you. He'll take care of that. He'll guide your heart. Because one day, every single one of us will see Jesus face to face. And we'll come face to face with that holy God. And for some, that day will be a day of being completely undone. But for those who are clothed in the holiness of Christ, on that day, those of us will join with all the other God's holy saints and will lift up our weary, tired, broken heads as the things of this earth pass away and we'll sing, Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And so I want to stand. I want to sing again tonight if we can, guys. What's, what's, what's it look like back there? What's that? It's slow. Singers, do you guys know the words to the song well enough to come sing it? They're, they're like, yeah. <laughs> I want to sing this last song tonight, so do me a favor. Oh, look at that. God knows we want to sing this song tonight. And what about stage lights? Are they, they going to come up? Band, go ahead and come up. We can, we can start that process now.
Look at that. Gump, you're good. Yay. Front lights off. Everybody stand up. Casey, play a pad. Let's sing this song, y'all. <laughs>
finish up on the song. It's a great song. We'll do it again in the future. Uh, if you're visiting tonight, I'd love to meet and love to talk to you after the service. We'll hang around and, and I'll be up here and, and would love to talk to you. If you have questions about anything that was said tonight, you can email brian at refuge.church or we can meet up sometime through the week. That's part of my role here at this church. This week, as you go back to your everyday lives, man, just, just remember the holiness of God, numinous awe, that the closer we draw to God, the more that our sin is exposed, but the closer we draw to God, the more that we know he loves us, loves us, loves us, because he's holy, holy, holy. God bless. I love you all. See you next week.